0: We've just sung of words of power that will never fail, that they might prevail over our unbelief. And this is really the beauty of the book of John. It's the beauty of the Bible. It's the power of the word of God that penetrates the dead heart and quickens it. It makes the dead heart alive. Now, it's critical to understand that the dead heart doesn't know that it's dead, it's not completely unnatural for the dead of heart to look around at those who are alive and say, there's something different. See, that's what the unredeemed man or woman can and should acknowledge. But in his or her deadness, there is a massive groundswell of pride that overwhelms and refuses to acknowledge the distinctly different state of his heart and his life in contrast to that of those who are, in fact, alive. And I want to prime your heart with the distinctive reality that distinguishes the two. It is good works. You'll see this unfold as we go, but it is the reality of legitimately powerful, good works. As a Christian, your life is a display of the works of God manifest in you. The person who is not daily devoted to this, he might be committed to some kind of works for sure, but if he's not committed to the work of God being manifest, in his heart, the work of belief, if he's not committed to that in his own heart, then whatever he works he might be committed to are going to be spotty at best. Not really going to have any kind of ultimate evangelistic impact on anybody because those works don't display the love of God. They don't display the love of Christians for each other. They only display some sort of effort to gain favor and maybe even to gain credibility. So that intros our time this morning that we might understand in God's sovereign grace that he would establish things to be the way they are, that his good works would be on display, that the works of those who trust him, who believe in him, would also be on display, that his works would be on display. You say that sounded a little circular. Exactly. That's how it works, if you don't mind the pun. Last week, we saw that a man was born blind so that God's glory would be displayed in his healing. So turn with me to the book of John, John 9, verses 1 through 7. We'll read this text, and then we will look at it together. As he passed by, he saw a blind man from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We'll see that a man was born blind that the works of God might be displayed in him, so that the works of God will be displayed in us. Last week, point number one was God's design to display his works in a blind man for his own glory. This is what I had hoped you and I would see. Together as Jesus passed by, he saw this blind man from birth. When his disciples asked the question, Who sinned this man or his parents? Jesus really lays the sovereign grace of God on the line. It's a penetrating watershed moment for anyone who would either receive or reject the truth of God's character. This was God's design. The man's life was a life of suffering. Why? That God's works would be on display. Now, we did not last week answer the question, why would God allow this to happen to this man, that he would be blind from birth? Because God did not allow it. He caused it. So we didn't bother answering a question that's not a valid question. But isn't blindness, sickness and illness, malformation and all the like the result of the fall, sin's consequences? Absolutely. We saw that in the curse in Genesis 3 last week. So we answered the question, then, how do these things work together? We answered it insofar as it can be answered. Why would God cause the man's blindness from birth? Simply... By reading the words of Jesus, we answered this question, that the works of God might be displayed in him. And this really relieves all the pressure of bearing some sort of responsibility to define God in such a way that it's appealing to the lost. Do you ever feel that pressure when you're endeavoring to share Christ with someone You attempt to do everything you possibly can to package the presentation in a way that it's appealing to a dead man. You must not only resist that temptation, you must cease and desist. Stop apologizing for God's sovereign grace. Stop embracing the false theology of those who attempt to define him in such a way that a dead man would embrace him. Do you not see over and over and over and over and over in the book of John that the message is an unbelievable message, and therefore those who are dead in their trespasses and sins do not believe it? It's a miraculous work of God when he produces faith, when he gives the gift of belief to the dead man when he makes him alive. This is not such a problem. Uh, for those who utterly and completely on the surface just reject the person of Christ. Those for whom it is the greatest problem is those who profess to know Christ and clearly don't, as testified not only by their rejection of these truths, but by their rejection of the command to live a holy life. That's what you see fleshed out in this passage, that a person who receives the reality of what God says about his works is committed to doing God's works, and he's known by that. He's known by the twofold reality that he embraces humbly the truth about God and his sovereign works, and therefore he does good works. He does not find himself in a pattern of complaining about all that he's been asked to do. He finds himself grateful that in what short window of time he has during this lifetime while he has breath that it can be given to Christ and his church in such a way that it would make a difference in eternity. And he stops thinking so much about what car he's going to drive and what career he's going to have and whether or not they're going to have enough money to leave tons of cash for their kids. Far more concerned with storing up treasure in heaven. And therefore, his life becomes characterized by the works of God. And inevitably, what happens in his life, to the degree that he becomes increasingly faithful to this axiomatic reality found in the Scripture that a person who understands and receives and acknowledges God's works himself wants to do good works on an ongoing, uninterrupted basis for the Lord and for his people. Those who are not so interested in that start giving them a really rough time about their faithfulness to Christ. They become disgruntled. They begin to display ingratitude. Well, why are you spending so much time with the church? Well, why are you serving so much? Why are you all caught up in the Bible? It's an inevitable reality that the person who really begins to grow in the Lord, that unsaved family members will become massively critical of that, but not just unsaved family members but immature family members who need gracious leadership. Now, let me just tell you, the wrong way to approach this, if you're finding yourself in that position of becoming increasingly faithful to Christ and his church, if you have a family member who's having a difficult time with this, the wrong thing to do is say, just get over it. The right thing to do is to say, let's talk this through. Let's seek counsel from godly people who understand that the works of God are a display of His greatness that would lead us by passion and by faith into similar Christ-magnifying service so that when we get to the end of our lives, we won't say, well, that was a struggle. That was a wrestling match for my entire marriage, my entire parenting Experience, even my grandkids wondering if I'm crazy because I spend all my time doing things for the Lord. And I suspect that every single one of you in this room has had some experience either on one side or the other of this predicament, and maybe both. My hope would be that you are on the latter side of this, graciously growing and learning to understand that the key term that you're looking for here is not. Balance. Get that idea out of your head. I don't know. Don't look to me for help when it comes to understanding the balance of how much to serve the church and your family and your job and all those things. I'm going to be no help with that. The key term is not balance, the key term is faithfulness, it's prayer. It's spending time in the Word. It's seeking counsel from godly people. It's engaging, actually literally engaging in discipleship, receiving the joy of godly people who understand this and live this, pouring into you and helping you understand why it's a passion for them, and at times it's drudgery for you. It's a matter of faithfulness. You have one life to live. Will it be spent taking your kids to soccer practice? Is that what it's going to be about? Nothing against soccer. It's one of the best pretend sports I know of. <laughs> that said, we spend a little bit of time playing football. Right? Those things are not wrong. And don't think, don't ever think that when you're doing something that is not intrinsically connected to the body of Christ that it is necessarily evil or a misplaced use of your time. We're not saying that. But we ought to be taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Can you do that at soccer practice? Of course you can. I hope you do. I hope you do. I hope you see those things as an endeavor to find a way into people's lives that you might share the truth of the cross with them. I sent an email out this week related to a place uh, where you guys and some of you gals, if you're interested, can get power tools at a lower cost. I do that for two reasons. One is because every real man owns power tools, right? And if he doesn't, he will soon after me saying that, right? So secondly, I want us to have an influence on those men who are, as far as I can tell, only committed to power tools. That's That's no way to end your life. Oh, I sold a lot of power tools. But do you know the Lord? And so my hope would be that no matter what it is, whether you eat or drink and fill in everything in between, whether you eat or drink or whatever else, in all that you do, you would glorify Christ. That's what we see in this text. Now, where Jesus says that this was done that the works of God might be displayed in him. This is a display of the difference between omnipotence and sovereignty. Many people confuse these two terms and think they're the same. They're not. If God were simply omnipotent, all-powerful, he would not have caused the blindness. He would have simply cured it. Being sovereign, he caused it. Omnipotence is ability or power. Sovereignty is the uninterrupted exercise of that power. God never sleeps, nor does he slumber. Proverbs 16, 9 says, The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Steps are much more specific than a way. A guy figures out what he wants to do with his life. God ordained the details, the steps. I form light and I create darkness. I make well-being and create evil. I am the Lord who does all these things, says Isaiah 45, Seven. So to ascribe a sovereignty that does not include the clear reality of evil is to conjure up a convenient half-sovereignty, which is not sovereignty. It is the selective omnipotence, and it does not describe the God of the Bible. Look with me at Romans 3, verse 5. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. And this is related to what I shared with you last week, that some will take theological truths and they will force them down into the funnel of human experience. And they will only allow themselves to believe that which is humanly believable. That's the 1 Corinthians 2, 15 problem, 14 through 16 really. The natural man doesn't accept the things of the Spirit of God. So if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath in us. Paul confesses here he's making a point by speaking in strictly human terms. He's acknowledging, really, he's cutting off at the past. Those who just deal in human terms, they don't think spiritually. By no means, though. We don't simply live in human terms. We think in light of spiritual truth. By no means related to that human way of thinking. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? That's what some will say when they resist the truth of God's sovereignty. Well, in your system, then I could just get away with anything. That's exactly what Paul's cutting off here. He's addressing the person who chooses to reject truth and say, well, if what you're saying is true, then I can do whatever I want because God sovereignly caused it all. Listen to what Paul says about this person. You need to know, you need to understand when a person functions that way, when he resists truth with a hard-hearted, sarcastic response to this truth, Paul defines his problem. Listen to what he says. And why not do evil that good may come? That's the question. As some people slanderously charge us with saying, you ever had that happen? You're trying to explain to someone the sovereignty of God and they slanderously charge you with saying, well, you may as well just do evil that good may come. You with me? You've had these conversations, haven't you? What does Paul say about them? Their condemnation is just. He's saying they're yet condemned. A person who operates with that mindset is in the condemned state. So he speaks sarcastically against truth. You see, God in his sovereignty exercises his omnipotence so that he may show his grace. This is why we call it sovereign grace. You see his sovereignty, you see his grace. He's a God of sovereign grace, and man's limited, restricted, worldly wisdom and understanding is folly in God's eyes. Beloved, this is a humbling truth. It's a humbling truth which no prideful man will even consider. He resists it and even rejects it in his effort to keep God controllable and manageable by his own efforts to restrict him to his limited human understanding and wisdom. And Jesus says in Matthew 11:25, 25, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father... And no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Is that interesting? The very reality of God's sovereign decree in salvation is reflected in that the person who rejects this about God is shown to not know God. That's Jesus' point Proverbs 16.4, the Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Lamentations 3.37, who has spoken and it came to pass, unless the Lord has commanded it, is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Lamentations 2.17, the Lord has done what he purposed. He has carried out his word which he commanded long ago. He has thrown down without pity. He has made the enemy rejoice over you and exalted the might of your foes. Amos 3.6, does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? We see this in the life of Job, about whom God said there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright who feared God and turned away from evil. This was a faithful man, truly, a pinnacle of hope and truth and faithfulness and light. He was a righteous man. He wasn't a pervasive sinner. This was no false convert. This was not a man who needed the discipline of God that he might get his act together. This was the standard setter. He was faithful. And Job, being righteous, displays his need for spiritual growth. He displays his need for daily repentance. In Job 9.13, God will not turn back his anger beneath him, bowed the helpers of Rahab. How then can I answer him, choosing my words with him? Though I am in the right, I cannot answer him. I must appeal for mercy to my accuser. Sounds good so far. This is Job speaking. I must appeal for mercy. If I summoned him and he answered me, I would not believe that he was listening to my voice. For he crushes me with a tempest and multiplies my wounds without cause. He will not let me get my breath, but fills me with bitterness. This is a man who needs spiritual growth. Now, you've met people, you've talked to people, you've probably even read commentaries that paint Job in such a way that is completely faultless throughout this experience. He's not. As God is putting him through the crucible, Job reveals the reality that he's a complainer. Well, why in the world does he repent if there was no sin in Job's life? Here in chapter 38, you see the Lord really beginning to do a work in Job's heart. It says, then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. The Lord came out of nowhere as far as Job knew at this point. Job had kind of settled into his complaining state. I did nothing to deserve this. Now, in his defense, he had three really bad counselors who took it way beyond reality and accused him of things for which he was not guilty. They got it totally wrong. They were not good counselors. The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? You hear the point in that? Who is this that takes my pristine, perfect, inerrant, infallible word and casts darkness upon it? Dress for action like a man. You can imagine the Lord saying, Really, Job? This is your position? I will question you and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? You see, the man or the woman who resists the reality of God's sovereignty does not consider God's rebuke of Job. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. It's very sarcastic. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? And who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, Thus far shall you come and no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. God saying, Okay, you know about the ocean, but do you have any clue that I control every molecule of H2O, for my purposes. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? In chapter 40, verse 3, then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. See, there's the beginnings of repentance. How do you know when a man is repentant? You don't until... Time has shown it. You ought to be very, very careful of the man who communicates that he is repentant when this is the first indication of it. God is not done with Job in preparing him for communicating a message of repentance. Job saying, "God, got it." Totally on board. I was wrong. No, I'm right. Thanks so much. Where, what's for lunch? Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. At least he's beginning to acknowledge the reality that it's time for him to stop talking. Oh, the benefits of restraining one's lips, especially for the person who has zero affirmation. From anyone who understands what it is to know the Lord. At least Job understands this. It's time for me to close my mouth and listen. And God says, dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God, and can you thunder with a voice like his? Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour out the overflowings of your anger and look on everyone who is proud and abase them. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low and tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them all in the dust together. Bind their faces in the world below. Then will I also acknowledge to you that your own right hand can save you. This righteous man had become self-righteous, and he wanted his day in court. Well, again, there's so much here, but go with me to chapter 42, verse 2, and Job is low. You know the difference between a person who is low and a person who is haughty and pretends to be low. You can see it in the eyes. Proverbs tells us you can see it in the eyes. The heart is revealed through one's response to the word of God. Let that sink deep, friends. Let that sink deep. Do you come here to assess the message or do you come here to be scathed So that you could be useful. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Job goes on to acknowledge his distrust in the Lord. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? See, now Job is using God's words to describe Job. You you see that? That's where you and I should be. We should be willing to no longer reject what God has said about mankind and actually use those words to define and describe ourselves, to acknowledge the total depravity that the Bible speaks of over and over and over, rather than twisting it to say that it means something other than what it says. To acknowledge that truth about our condition. Who is this that hides me? Job is saying. It was I. Who attempted to hide your counsel, oh, by the way, without knowledge, pretended to have knowledge. Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Here and I will speak, I will question you, and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Job speaks of the experiential difference between being a believer and a mature believer. You could say it this way, I've been changed by the gospel, but now I see what it is to really be changed by the gospel. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. I retract the nonsense that I was so vexed about. This high view of myself that I was so prolifically committed to proclaiming. This is a righteous man and he's being Why, though, do some people vehemently reject this clearly biblical truth with passion while they have no passion for their own spiritual growth, much less the spiritual good of others? Why? For the same reason that many of Jesus' disciples turned back and no longer walked with him in John 6, 66. I won't go back all through that. It's on the message on the recording from last week. But in verse 60, John six sixty, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? And what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The person who remains committed to his fleshly approach to things. Well, that doesn't make sense to me. Therefore, it doesn't make sense. That's the fleshly mindset. Until things in the Bible fit with my worldview, must be wrong. It must be a bad interpretation. This is pretty simple. There's not a lot of interpretive effort involved in this. The flesh is no help at all. The person who never is affirmed as having legitimately been regenerated by the work of God, not by his own proclamation of his works in the past, has had no help at all. He has only remained steadfastly committed to proclaiming, well, I do this, I did that, I've done all these things rather than resting in the work of the Lord, which is a work of the Spirit. If you want a commentary on this, read Romans 8. The Spirit and the flesh are at odds with each other. John says, It's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But, to answer the question, why are those who remain Hard hearted against the truth of God's sovereign grace, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. The truth of God's sovereignty in election is what Jesus is saying he used in this moment to separate the believers from the unbelievers. I'm not saying he's making a declaration about their belief and their unbelief. I'm saying that it is that truth that sends unbelievers running. They will never receive the truth of God's sovereignty in election. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Why? 1 Corinthians 2.14, The natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their folly to him. And he cannot receive them, because they are spiritually discerned. But the spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ, meaning the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of God indwells us, and we have that which is contained in the mind of Christ in his word. We don't have it exhaustively, but we have it Exactingly. We have exactly what is necessary to honor the Lord with our lives in his word. But it is the passionate effort of those who want to be thought of as a person who loves the word of God to pick and choose what he believes, rather than resting in the clear and obvious and yet hard to believe truths. So does it make more sense now that God would cause a man to be born blind so that he might show his grace in healing him? This is the increasing conclusion to which you and I should be arriving. No, a man-made, human-driven system does not agree with this. It can't. It can't. This is a divine, spiritually given truth. In John 1, 11, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. He goes on in verse 13 to explain they were born not of blood. It's not a biologically inherited reality. Uh, nor of the will of the flesh, that's obvious because the flesh is evil, nor of the will of man. This really boils it down, but of God. You say, well, did they receive him or not? It is a birth granted by God, and in the moment that that birth is granted, man receives him volitionally. It's a new will. It's a will that he didn't have and couldn't have unless God stepped in and granted him. New life. Now in our text in verse six, picking up where we left off with Jesus calling out this uh, reality of this man's blindness and giving him sight, it says, having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam,' which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Why do you make mud? Why would he do that? The only thing we can really know about this is that he did do it. He did it for a reason. And by doing it this way, he drew attention to the sovereign, gracious heart of God to use that which most certainly could not produce sight in a blind man. Using mud made from dirt and saliva has little or no value until the power of God touches it. In fact... It wasn't the mud that gave sight at all. It was the God-man by whom all things are created and for him and through him were created. So he gets the glory. This is physiological reality. Christ defies nature. He reverses nature by making a blind man have vision. But it illustrates the spiritual reality that a blind man cannot make himself healed. He cannot give himself sight, not even with some sort of potion. There was nothing that could have been useful to him to gain sight. Therefore, he gets none of the glory. And by the way, as the story progresses, he wants none of the glory. He's just willing to say, I don't know who it was, but he gave me sight. And that is what happens when God comes out of nowhere, the Spirit comes out of nowhere and saves someone just as the wind comes out of nowhere. If the mud may have received the glory the first time someone else would have attempted to use it to heal someone, that idea would fall flat immediately because it would have failed. Was it the waters in the pool? No. No. Were it the waters in the pool, he would have been seeing a long time ago, along with other folks in the community who would have been healed of all kinds of diseases. We would have known about that. Miracles, by the way, were very rare throughout the Old Testament. They're just two short 70 year periods of, uh, of miracles. And at this point, miracles hadn't happened for centuries. So the one who created light the one who miraculously created all things out of nothing, gives light to a man born in darkness, just as he gives light to those born in darkness today. He gives sight to the blind, and he gives life to the dead. So this is a review of last week. We looked at God's design to display his works in a blind man for his own glory. This morning, point two, I want you to see God's design to display his works in us. For his own glory. Back to verse 4. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. If you go forward to John 12, verse 35, John says, So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. He's speaking to the disciples about working the works of the Lord in the time during which Jesus would be there. He wouldn't be there much longer. But during this time, we, he says, that collective personal pronoun that includes not just himself and not just the disciples, but the disciples and himself. We are to do the works that he has given to us. And so you see the correlation between understanding God's sovereignty in suffering and a willingness to do his works. Is it not common for some when they begin to experience the greatest difficulties in their lives, what's the first thing they abandon? The church. The first thing, they cut out. It's not the second thing or the third or the fourth and that reveals the reality that the church is a luxury or a convenience at best. There's a correlation here. Those who would understand that This man was born blind that the works of God might be displayed in him are those to whom he gives the command to get busy doing good works. And the pragmatic way to say it, and I don't think it's wrong, because pragmatism is only wrong when it violates theology. The pragmatic reality in this text and throughout the book of John is that nobody wants to get to the end of their life and say, I was really good at working on cars or I made a lot of money, an amazing career. I could really, really catch a football well. That's going to be a real tragedy for those who have that to say. John Piper talks about the retired folks who get to the end of their lives and say, but look at all the seashells we collected on the beach. It's an amazing illustration for those who literally have spent endless hours collecting different types of seashells. The thing that always comes to my mind is bird watchers. How much time can you actually spend watching birds before you've kind of run through all the different kind of birds that there are? I I don't know, maybe a lot. Nothing wrong with bird watching, you understand, but the person who gets to the end of his life and he's known for being a bird watcher? When he could have been known for being a person who trusts in the sovereign grace of God, who caused a man to be born blind, that his grace would be on display. He could have been that guy. He won't be popular. And he will be most hated, not by the world, because the world thinks we're all crazy. He will be most hated by those of the church who are not of the church. Those who resist and refuse and reject the sound reality of God's character. The one who recognizes God's sovereign hand as the source of his trial is the one who trusts in his sovereign purpose to bring about his own glory and the greater good of the one being afflicted, tested, and refined. Think of it. When have your most useful moments been It's been when people know that you are undergoing the greatest trial of your life. And you might have either complained or you might have ascribed glory to God who sovereignly designed the trial that his grace might be displayed in your life because you know grace is coming. You know that relief is coming at the very least in heaven where there will be no sorrow, there will be no trials. But for now, you can, as the blind man say, I don't totally understand this, but Jesus healed me. The man who wants to be afflicted, tested, and refined recognizes and strives to be involved in the works of God. In Numbers 15, under Moses' leadership, a man is executed by God's command for violating the Sabbath. Then in number 16, the sons of Korah rebel against Moses' leadership because of that man's rightful execution. Sons of Korah decided to take things in their own hands. Number 16, 28. And Moses said, Hereby you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works and that it has not been of my own accord. You may be going through a trial very much like this. You're doing works for the Lord. You're doing God's works. And someone who professes also to know the Lord is critical of you for doing God's works. Let me just suggest you've never been through what Moses goes through in this text. If these men die as all men die, or if they are visited by the fate of all mankind, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord creates something new and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that belongs to them and they go down alive into Sheol, then you shall know that these men have despised the Lord. This is a precursor to the reality of eternal torment for those who reject the works of God. But it is a literal, physical, historical reality in the lives of the sons of Korah. Verse 31 And as soon as he had finished speaking all these words, the ground under them split apart. And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the people who belonged to Korah and all their goods. So they and all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol, and the earth closed over them, and they perished from the midst of the assembly. And there are two processes by which this takes place in the modern church. One is that God does take people. We see that in 1 Corinthians 11. We see it in 1 John. The person who continues to resist the Lord and reject truth, God will take him. But the church also has a duty. And we've been through that in Matthew 18 recently in Galatians 6 and 2 Corinthians 5. The church has a duty to purify the church. Moses played the role that the church plays today, that the works of God would be done out of a fear of God and a lack of fear of man. Psalm 46.8 says, Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire be still and know that I am God. You've heard that many times. You've probably quoted it. You've probably tried to remind your heart in the midst of great difficulty and turmoil and uncertainty and sadness and discouragement and maybe depression. You've probably reminded yourself that God has said, be still and know that I am God. But think of the context. The context is that God causes desolation. So don't just trust the Lord in being relieved of the trial. Trust the Lord that the trial is from him for his glory and your good. You see, the person who never, ever embraces this intrinsically and pervasively obvious truth throughout Scripture is never useful to anybody because he's constantly fighting what God has said about himself. He's constantly attempting to superimpose a human, a strictly human, unspiritual, fleshly mindset upon the character of God. And be certain that when you bring up Scripture, he will only get angry about what the Bible actually says. You can't have a discussion with that person about this. He will refuse to discuss the Bible and only attempt undermine and ridicule your conclusions. He won't talk to you about truth. Back to verse 4 in our text. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work in this speaks of two realities. It's not a duplicitous statement. The point is that this was true for them in one way, and it's true for us today. Jesus was saying to them, I won't be here at some point. I am the light of the world while I am in the world, but I'm leaving. And at that point, the works that the Father has called me to do will be curtailed. Jesus says to the disciples, you will do greater works even than I. And he was speaking about breadth. He was speaking about the extent. He was speaking numerically that they would, of course, because there are more of them, do far more works than Jesus himself did. But this would be of no help to us if it were simply a historical theological reality expressing to us what happened in one time. It's a call for you and I to get busy working. Ephesians 2, verse 8. For by grace you've been saved through faith. It's is not your doing. It's the gift of God, not as a result of work so that no one may boast. You see, Jesus does, Paul's doing the exact same thing that Jesus here did in the narrative of the blind man. He speaks of God's sovereign grace and he says, get busy. Verse 10 for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. See, it's a progressive reality for the growing Christian to understand that God speaks of this fundamental truth, that God is sovereign all things and gives commands. So God not only sovereignly decrees the outcome, he sovereignly decrees the means by which those decrees are fulfilled. And the person who refuses to obey those commands reveals that as yet he's not even in the Lord. We can't know whether or not it's been sovereignly decreed for that person to one day repent of that. But we can know in the moment that as he rejects the truth about God and therefore is unwilling to do the works of God, he is at best a false convert, if not a long-term unbeliever. We can't know which it is, but at the very least, we know he's currently not interested in the works of God. Why? Because he doesn't do them. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. It's Jesus in John 6, 27. What must we do? This is the always missing the point Pharisees. What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. And lots and lots of people, truly potentially billions of people, will say, Well, of course I believe in Jesus. Do you believe in the Jesus of John 6? The God man of sovereign grace. That is doing the work of God, to believe. And the result of that work is that you will do other works. God, Romans 2, 5, Paul says, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. It is impossible to overestimate the seriousness and the severity of what it is to be a false convert. And I would say in particular for the one who scoffs at the concept of false conversion, he does not understand the seriousness of it. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. Romans 4.2, For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Righteousness. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. That is what it is to rest in God's works. Fast forward to Romans 12, and you see what it is to rest in God's works and do God's works as a result. James 2.14, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works and the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. The point is that Abraham believed God when God sovereignly decreed that he would kill his son and then withhold his hand from doing so. That is the moment in which God affirms his faith. Abraham believed what God's word actually says about God. He did not attempt to redefine him in a way that's palatable to the person who's yet blind. So often in evangelism, the faulty approach attempts to make a blind man see when you have no power to do so. So rather than trusting the Lord to give a man sight, you just convince him that he can see. No, no, you're not really blind. Let me just talk about God's love. Philippians 2:12 speaks of the works of God manifest in man. Therefore my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The work of salvation is a work of God in which you must be involved. Are you passionate about your sanctification? Do you care at all? If you do care, what are you doing about it? Have you pleaded with someone to walk you through what it is to be a growing Christian? Have you invited some, maybe a handful of people, to confront you with your sin? Are you just happy to kind of be uh, that person that sort of goes through life professing to be a Christian but has literally absolutely no valid, meaningful relationships? Do all things without grumbling or disputing. I used to get my car worked on at a place called... Bob Hedge, it was named after the owner. My dad used to go there and drink beer with these guys. When I got to be old enough to have a car that needed work, I took it where my dad would go. And it didn't take long to realize that it wasn't the right place to go. And one of the signs was that that guy only ever complained. That's all I ever heard him do. And I remember asking a school teacher, so where do you get your car worked? And I always go to Bob Hedge. And he said, oh, you mean the Complaint Factory? I suggest that some people are known as complaint factories. Nearly everything turns into, it funnels down to some negative comment. The work of salvation being worked out in you with fear and trembling is to recognize that God kills people for complaining. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God, listen to this, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Do you care for the lost at all? You see that they're twisted and they're corrupt and Rick talked this morning about people who kill babies. You know, do you care at all about their condition such that you would in fact be engaged in your own sanctification that you would be useful to them? God would see your increasingly purified life, that you are holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. This is near and dear to my heart as a pastor. Please, I beg of you, don't let it be a useless effort on my part that at the end of our lives we can say, hey, we got along pretty well. But that we could each say it was hard There were hard things, and Todd, one of the hard things I remember you saying is that God kills people for complaining. I didn't like it when you said that, but I took it to heart, and I started recording myself, meaning I went to other people asking them, do I complain? Am I a complainer? Fill in the blank with whatever besetting sin you may have. 1 Corinthians 12 really speaks of the nature of how this works itself out in a local church. That there's a body with whom you have become interdependent. And maybe a smaller body that we call family groups. It's not a church. It's a portion of the church. But it's really where you get involved. Think of it this way. What did you recently forsake where the body had a need so that you could do something that you enjoy? On the other hand, what did you recently sacrifice? Because you knew the body had a need, and you're gifted in such a way that you could potentially help with that. 1 Corinthians 12, For the body does not consist of one member but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And this illustration goes on and on and on in such a way that by the time you get to the end of it, you're going, uncle, I get it. I get it. I need the church. The church needs me. you in a rhythm? Are you in a rhythm in such a way that the body is dependent upon your service? If you're not, stop calling yourself a Christian. I'm not saying you're not a Christian. I'm saying stop saying it in public until you get into a rhythm of being useful to Christ and his church. Then go out and evangelize the lost unto actual Christianity. Because if you're trying to evangelize people unto your faithlessness, you're not doing them or you or anybody any good. And It's not about being busy. We'll see that in a moment. Galatians 6 verse 10, so then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. That completely eliminates the idea that, well, my ministry is, you know, my neighborhood. Well, I'm not really interested in the church or whatever and all that, but, you know, I do these things at work. No, no, especially, do good especially to the household of of God look with me quickly at John 15 John 15 verse 1 I'm the true vine and the father is the vine dresser every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away see that say it this way every branch that doesn't do work he takes away And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. That's suffering. Pruning hurts. Why? That it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself. Unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. You see the point? The person that's not bearing fruit doesn't abide in Jesus. Jesus doesn't abide in him. He doesn't know Jesus. He doesn't know the Lord. I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. See, if you're abiding in Jesus, and Jesus' word is abiding in you, the things that you're going to want to ask for are going to be things that he is honored by. And of course he'll grant you those things. See that? You ever wonder why some people are overworked in the church? It's because so many people are underworked. Simple enough. It's kind of like math. Some people do nothing, therefore everybody else does everything else. It's 1 Corinthians 12. John 7, verse 7. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are Are evil works that are not resulting in spiritual growth, they're not resulting in legitimate evangelism, they're evil works. And false converts hate what Jesus says about their evil works, so they hate the Jesus of the Bible. And again, lest you might be thinking, Oh, I guess I gotta just get busy, I gotta do more works, I gotta do more things. Matthew 7, verse 21. It's his world. It's his stage. It's his script. He draws a line between those who will submit to him and those who will struggle against him trying to rewrite the script. There's so many things you could be doing, and many of you are, I know. Many of you are. There's your family group who needs you. They need you to pray. They need your counsel. They need your love. They need sometimes a meal. There's the pregnancy center. You know, that's an extension of our work as a church, not the center itself, but our work there. Our building needs cleaned on a regular basis. We have maintenance in our building that needs to be done that goes neglected sometimes because the few who are willing can't do it all. There are people who need counseling. There's children's ministry. There's music ministry. There's youth ministry. There's our bulletin ministry. There's landscaping that needs to be done. There's so much. And it's a joy to do it if you're doing it as a work of the Lord. But when you're doing it not by the power of the Lord and for your own reputation, the word burnout is your new label. That's when people get burned out. You're doing your work for the Lord. There's no such thing as burnout. It won't happen. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And that many, that number of people for whom he gave his life will do good works in his name. That's Mark 10, 45. They will do good works in his name. And those who reject the truth of his sovereign grace will have no interest in doing works in his name. And rather than confessing that and repenting of that, they'll blame it on somebody else. So this is why I can't do those things. When God's word is clear, the branch that does not produce fruit will be burned up eternally. Last, let's look at John 20, verse 30. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Do you believe all the works of God are works of God? You find yourself resistant to some of the works of God that don't seem fair in a worldly system? Or are you willing to say, this is hard to believe. I'm not going to walk away, but I'm going to seek discipleship. I'm going to seek to be discipled even as the disciples were discipled so that the works that I do would be reflective of the works of God. In fact, they would be the works of God, and we could say, oh, Lord, bless the work of our hands. Because the work of our hands is the result of a plan that we've put together in an honest effort to honor the Lord and a willingness to say, God's going to probably change that plan nearly every day. So we rest in him. We rest in him that we who abide in him and whose word abides in us will bear more fruit. Father, we rejoice with full hearts with which you've blessed us to honor you that we might sing and praise and honor you in all that we do. We ask this in Jesus' name.